Goddag og velkommen til Langsomme Samtaler. Mit navn er Rune Lykkeberg. Jeg har i den her uge talt med den amerikanske filosof Nancy Fraser, der sidste år udgav en bog, som er et lille hovedværk i kapitalismekritikken fra de senere år. Den hedder Cannibal Capitalism og er en beskrivelse af en kapitalisme, der er kannibalsk i den forstand, at den æder sit eget grundlag. Men det mener Fraser, at det ikke bare er økonomien, der er kapitalistisk. Vores samfund er kapitalistisk. Og det, der kendetegner det kapitalistiske samfund, det er, at man tillader økonomien at trække på alle de ikke-økonomiske ressourcer på en måde, så den smadrer sit eget fundament. Hvis man skal give et meget enkelt eksempel, er det, at det i vores del af verden er fuldstændig legitimt at udnytte naturen til at skabe økonomisk vækst, og på den måde så trækker man på nogle ressourcer i økonomien, som økonomien ikke genskaber, og som er fundamentet for vores liv. Det er derfor, hun mener, at samfund, der spiser sit eget fundament for at blive ved med at udvikle sig, egentlig er kanibalistisk. Det gælder også i forhold til omsorgsarbejde, det gælder i forhold til demokrati, og det gælder på en masse andre områder. Bogen er kulminationen på en interesse, som Nancy Fraser har haft siden 1960'erne for at udvikle en kapitalismekritik, der på den ene side var så nuanceret, så den fanger det avancerede og komplekse og højkompetente i kapitalismen, men på den anden side er så appellerende, så den giver folk et slogan for deres modstand. Det er det, kapitalismen er for Nancy Fraser. Jeg mødte selv Nancy Fraser første gang for 13 år siden, det var lige efter Barack Obama var blevet valgt som præsident i USA, og vi troede stadigvæk på Yes, we can, hope or change. Vi troede på, at Barack Obama ville transformere den amerikanske kapitalisme, ville lave en grøn omstilling og ville revitalisere hele det amerikanske demokrati. Vi troede på, at den bevægelse af håb, begejstring og tro på politik, der havde gjort ham til præsident, også ville være fundamentet for hans måde at regere på. Dengang kom Nancy Fraser til Roskilde Universitetscenter og holdt et foredrag, hvor hun sagde, glem alt om Barack Obama. Han er ikke nogen stor transformativ præsident. Han vil regere ligesom præsidenterne før ham. Hun kom og sagde til os, drømmen er forbi. Jeg har glædet mig meget til at møde Nancy Fraser igen. For os denne gang kommer vi med et håb om, at der er ved at ske noget nyt i USA. Vi tror på, at Joe Biden faktisk gør, hvad han kan for at føre sager mod de store amerikanske virksomheder for at gennemføre en rigtig grøn omstilling af hele den amerikanske energiproduktion, for at lave en handelspolitik, som er solidarisk, og for at indrette den amerikanske økonomi, så den ikke skaber værdi med fokus på aktionærerne, men så den skaber værdi med fokus på arbejderne. Det er vores forhåbning. I den samtale, der følger nu, der kan I høre om Nancy Fraser, ligesom i 2010 vil sige til mig, glemte unge europæiske romantikere, drømmen er forbi, eller om hun vil sige, det er rigtigt, adskillige årtiers kapitalismekritik har nu nået frem til en politiker, der vil tage det alvorligt. God fornøjelse med min samtale med Nancy Fraser. Good evening and welcome to our viewers here in Denmark and especially hello to you Nancy Fraser who's with us from New York. Thank you so much for taking your time. Well, thank you for inviting me. I'm happy to be in this conversation with you. Well, thank you. We've been very impressed by your latest book, Cannibal Capitalism, that came out last year. I want to recommend it to everyone, and that will be the focal point of our conversation. But I want to start somewhere else, because the last time I met you and I talked to you is 14 years ago, and you came to Denmark, and that was right after the election of, uh, of Barack Obama 
And we had such high hope for hopes for Barack Obama. And for some weird reason, we thought he was a socialist. And we were convinced that he would take on the financial structures of America and and that, that he was going to do he was going to use the financial crisis as an occasion to really reform the economic order in America. And you came to Roskilde University and said to us, don't expect too much. Don't expect too much. Uh, the campaign was brilliant, but he's a neoliberal. Now we're in a, a somewhat similar moment because we're very surprised and enthused by what the Biden administration is doing all the way from how they're reinterpreting antitrust. They're taking on the big corporate powers in America. The Inflation Reduction Act has been extremely influential here in Europe as well. The way they're rethinking trade policies, focusing on workers instead of consumers and saying it's all about stakeholders, not shareholders now. So we have a sensation that there's something new going on in, 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 in America. And, and I'm, of, of course, a little scared that, you, that you'll say, well, don't get your hopes too high this time. How do you see this moment? That is exactly what I'm going to say. Um, I mean, just, just to sort of go back to Obama, it's, it, it really is a, a perfect moment now to remember that 2007-8 financial crisis and how little was done to actually reform the structure there was a bailing out of banks and insurance companies and so on, uh, but the structure was left. And just today in Silicon Valley, in this, this past week, we are seeing the exact same dynamics playing out. Maybe it won't, uh, we all hope it won't go as far as in 2007, eight, but it really shows that, that this financial issue is a ticking time bomb it is sitting there waiting to explode. And um, Obama missed a golden opportunity to do something. That was, you know, a, a sort of moment for a shock doctrine from the left, right? You, where you could have uh, walked in and really made some dramatic changes. He stuck to recovery as opposed to reform. Now, as for Biden, Biden did exceed uh, expectations in his first term in many, many ways. Part of the reason is that Biden didn't actually have uh, much of a program or set of policies of his own. For, by default, he took on board a lot of Bernie Sanders ideas. And in the, in the context of the pandemic, right, was not afraid to spend a lot of money to really uh, allow people to survive that, uh, some better than others, obviously, um, but that Inflation Reduction Act, Infrastructure Act, all of these things came out of the Sanders playbook. Um, now I'm afraid that we're gonna see and are seeing a somewhat different turn um, because he's gearing up for the next election cycle. And um, Biden, I think, is very um, intent on uh, proving that he's tough on China and, of course, on Russia. Um, he is certainly going to protect Social Security and Medicare. These are the two things. But um, he's just authorized a huge oil drilling in Alaska. So uh, there are all sorts of ways in which he's, he's becoming very... Um, what opportunistic in terms of trying to hold off Republican lines of attack 
I think that the um, that the sort of more progressive side of Biden is is has finished, and he's a much more of a um, going to be a much more uh, centrist politician from now on. But I because I had the impression that the difference between 2008 and now is that you actually have a somewhat stronger left wing in America. You had the campaigns of Bernie Sanders mobilizing. You had some very progressive ideas from Elizabeth Warren. You've seen some inspiration from intellectuals like Barry Lynn, and, and you have other figures in place. And I've been somewhat hopeful that, of course, I know this is America, and there are very, very strong economic interests in America, a lot of conservatism, but that over the last 10 or 12 years, that there actually is a left wing in America that will keep mobilizing, keep pressurizing someone like Biden. I think that that's true, that um, a, a whole series of events from that uh, 2008 crisis through Occupy and and yes, the the hopes that were mobilized in Obama's you know first election campaign, um, and the, and the various Sanders campaigns. I think you're right that that this does add up to a growing body of left wing opinion that could be extremely good for the for the country. What I would say though is that is that at the moment. Um, what has really emerged uh, uh, as a very strong force is this very ugly alt-right ethno-nationalist white supremacist MAGA Trump that that sort of sucks out all the oxygen and it it puts the left very much on the defensive and unfortunately significant parts of the American left are taking the bait they're getting drawn into these culture wars and therefore, the whole question of the, the questions you raised about the economic order and so on are falling off the agenda. People are now focused very strongly on trans rights, on whether we should teach so-called critical race theory in the schools and, and so on and so forth. Uh, these It's not that these are not significant issues, but to the degree that the left focuses exclusively on this sort of thing, it loses the the working class vote, and so I I think we're we're seeing uh, dynamics now that take me back to my analysis of progressive neoliberalism, where the the left could, is may get sucked back into that after having a, a significant part of the left ha, had moved out of it during in the Sanders moment. I think that as I say, I think that uh, the, the the there's such a um, a fear of uh, Trumpism, whether it's with or without Trump, uh, that people say, "Oh, we have to, we have to ally again with the liberals and the neoliberals," which you know is is not the right response in my in my perspective. That really is a very precise term, progressive neoliberalism. I didn't hear it before. I read it in 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 a, in a book by you, in your latest book. You note that there is a lot of talk about capitalism uh, on the left in, in America, but you're also highly critical of it. You say that the current boom in capitalism talk remains lot, largely rhetorical. Uh, what, what is it? What is that's unfulfilling or, 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 or plain not sufficient about this, uh, this new way of talking about capitalism on the left in America? 
Well, I, I guess I want to make two points. Um, one is that capitalism has become a kind of a buzzword and um, it's symptomatic of something positive, namely a kind of intuition that there really is a social system in place, that, that it's not just a bunch of random disconnected problems, but there is one system that somehow drives all these problems. That's a very positive step in terms of understanding the world we live in. Um, but what has to follow then is, is a, a, a sort of more precise understanding of what that system is and how it works. Um, a lot of people use the term without so much content in that at that level. But on the other hand, I would say that um, I'm very impressed with um, the young people now in the United States. Uh, my own students at the New School, who are admittedly not representative because they come there to, to be in a left-wing place, but also within... Um, social movements like uh, Black Lives Matter and so on and so forth, all sorts of young people have been radicalized over the last decade. And they are, it reminds me of my youth in the 1960s. They are doing what we did, forming study groups, reading uh, Capital, reading all kinds of uh, works to try to right, understand uh, what capitalism is. So, and this is this is part of, I guess, always uh, what happens in these radicalizing phases. So I'm I, I think that there is more now in the way of informed thinking about this. It may not be uh, perfect, uh, as you know. I have my own take on how we should understand capitalism, which is not uh, held by everybody. Um, but I'm encouraged that people are interested in these questions. And at least some of them are starting to apply themselves to figure out answers. In you know, in Europe, we often have the impression that Americans don't talk a lot about capitalism. And you know, in Europe, on the left, we fetishize the working class, whereas in America, you talk a lot about the middle class. But but your work is different in in in, in that aspect. You've been you say in your book with Rahel Yegi, which is a wonderful wonderful book that you did together, that capitalism was always the master frame of, of your work. Whatever you were analyzing or doing critical theories, it, it was always in the perspective that it was situated within capitalism. And, and I'm curious, how, how did you first come to think of capitalism as a problem or as the master frame? Well, a two simple two-word answer, the new left. I, I'm a child of, of 1968. So my biography, which is quite typical of many people of my generation, started with the civil rights movement, the anti-Vietnam War movement, and the, the student movement, SDS, Students for a Democratic Society, and so on and so forth. And basically, we went through a process of learning um, more and more about the depth at which the problems were anchored. And I grew up in, in an, uh, a world where, you know, thanks to McCarthyism, I had no exposure to left-wing thinking at all uh, in, in my family, in, in my community. Um, it, it, was the, it was the new left, which for me was an explosive intellectual birth, an opening to a whole set of new ideas. And I 
still carry that that passion uh, and and those commitments. Uh, I hope my thinking has become a little more sophisticated now. <laughs> but um, but you know it 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 remains consistent. When I was doing my um, my early um, work as a graduate student, as a young professor, publishing my first articles and so on, there was still enough of the sort of new left atmosphere uh, around that I could take for granted that capitalism was the master frame. I, I didn't feel I needed to argue it. Um, as the time went on, it became clearer and clearer to me that uh, it did need to be argued. And so, uh, you know, I began to treat it not just as the, the background framing, as I did in all my early work, but as the explicit focus. And that book with Yegi um, was certainly, you know, one important uh, step in that development. I, I we use the word capitalism all the time here in the newspaper. So what I'm saying now is as much a criticism of, of of ourselves. But I often wonder what we mean when we talk about capitalism. Because if you listen to someone like Bernie Sanders, who's extremely popular here in Denmark and in this newspaper, what he refers to as socialism is actually what we would here in Denmark refer to as capitalism. Because our society is kind of a model for his socialism. And speaking of capitalism, we often assume that this is like an agent in history that produces the same outcomes everywhere. And I look around the world and I see the Chinese state capitalism. I see the American version of capitalism, the tech capitalism. And then we have this welfare capitalism, which definitely has its own flaws. I'm not saying we're the superior one. Just look at our immigration policies. How should we use this concept with the limitations and the reservations that, that, that I have here? Yeah, um, I, I really understand uh, and, and agree with uh, what you're saying uh, about Sanders, whom I adore, actually. Uh, I think he's one of the best things that's happened in U.S. politics in a long time. But I would not go to him for a definition of what democratic socialism is, <laughs> because you're absolutely right. He cites Denmark all the time. He means social democracy, essentially. And um, in, to my mind, that that may be better than neoliberalism, but it's not good enough. And it won't uh, deal with the, the massive and very acute problems that we are facing now, including climate change, of course. So, um, yeah, I agree that that uh, Sanders is, it will be, if anything good comes of any of this, he will be remembered as a great transitional figure, not as the guy who had the answers, okay? Um, now, you, you mentioned this idea of what some people call varieties of capitalism. So, yes, we have a Chinese model, which is very dirigiste, uh, with a, a strong directing state uh, uh, and a large public uh, sector, for that matter. We have a really ultra-neoliberalism US-UK. We have the various, I would say, remnants of social democracy in, in the Nordic countries and, and a few... Uh, places elsewhere. Um, these are all coexisting, but I think that there's a, um, a larger point and that at the international level, at the global level, the rules of the road are neoliberal. So neoliberalism today is the form of capitalism that sets a lot of the parameters and a lot of the constraints 
within which different countries have to operate. And it will depend on their histories and their political culture, what they can get away with in terms of the who will vote for whom and so on, um, you know, what they do. Or in the case of China, where they don't have to worry about voting, uh, they have a whole uh, different set of things. But, but I, I think that the basic uh, form of capitalism that we have today is neoliberal with these uh, differences um, in, in countries. And that's a big change from the previous period where the basic form, because we had Bretton Woods with capital controls and the, the, which gave the ability of governments to, to sort of uh, coordinate their own national economies in the way that they saw fit. So then we had much more uh, social democracy that made social democracy possible. Today, it is harder to have social democracy because the neoliberal rules of the road, so to speak, cut against it. Now, um, so it, from my point of view, the, the more important uh, issues are historical. Um, I think that in each phase of capitalist development, there is, um, you know, there are, uh, uh, there are some common things, even though they look different in different countries. So we had a kind of mercantile phase of capitalism from the 16th through the 18th century, which goes with the quote unquote discovery of the, the new world, uh, the massive importation of silver and uh, the um, uh, conquest, colonization and so on, long before industrial capitalism. Then you get industrial capitalism and direct rule colonialism. Then social democracy, social democratic capitalism, now neoliberal capitalism. Okay, but then the point is, and this is what I take to be the real point of your question, why do we call all these things capitalism? Because they are different. And so now I wanna say what I think capitalism is. Um, capitalism is not simply an economic system. It's a social order in which the economic system sits and which in a sense determines what the relation of the economic system will be to the rest of society, to the family forms, to communities, to nature, to the state and other and public powers, um, to geography in a sense. So um, in, in each of the phases I just named, where you and how you draw the line between the state and the market might look different. Mm -hmm. How you draw the line between production and reproduction or factory and family might be different. How you how we exactly interact with nature might be different. But in all of these cases, those divisions are absolutely fundamental. Capitalism constructs a separate it's not really separate, but a seemingly separate economy. And it, it wrenches it out of the rest of society and says, this is work and that what, what you're doing in the family is not. This we pay for, this we don't. Uh, you know, uh, this uh, creates value, this doesn't. And um, this, so I call it a, um, a, a, a 
an institutionalized societal order in which the economy is very important. But the economy in this system is, in a sense, given permission to cannibalize, that is the term I use in the book, to cannibalize the other sectors, to just free ride on them, to siphon wealth from them without being responsible to replenish what they take, repair what they damage. And uh, so we, we create this huge fund of economic value in the economy at the expense of the wealth of nature, the wealth of our caregiving capacities, the wealth of our capacities for public coordination and problem solving. Um, and this, by the way, takes us back to this financial crisis. These huge mass of, of, of value, which a lot of which is fictitious, a lot of which is on paper. And, and uh, but when it crashes, who pays? Ordinary people. And this also leads to another point, which is central in your work, namely that there is no outside capitalism. We often think of uh, that there's a place, a more human place or an alternative world or, you know, people living in harmonious communities that are not disturbed by, by capitalism. From where we would construct the alternative or which we would point to and say, this is a lot, you have all the solidarity here. But there's no outside capitalism in your in 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 your view. What are the consequences of that point from a critical perspective? Well, um, first of all, um, I, I would say that there there are out things that are outside the economy, but not because that they want to be exactly, but because they've been expelled, so to speak, from the universe of what counts as value and work. Um, so, and the problem is, it, it's those divisions between what is accepted as, as being work and being value and what is not. And that, that's the key. And that stamps the, 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 the non-economic as capitalist because it occupies a place within the larger capitalist society as a kind of reservoir from which corporations, investors, profiteers can suck value. Um, so our families are stamped by the fact that the society divides work from home, family from factory, real work from, from care work, real work in quotes, right? Um, now, that doesn't mean that the family is outside this. It means it's part of it but it occupies this disfavored place, so to speak. And the same is true uh, with respect to nature. Um, obviously, um, nature is, is, is completely sort of part of our world, but it has been stamped by the fact that the capitalist economy is allowed to treat it as a treasure trove from which it can just take what it wants and as a dumping ground into which it can right, uh, release uh, waste. This is within capitalism. Now you ask um, what follows from this. And um, I would say that it matters for how we formulate our critique and our political claims and our aspirations and our political projects. We should not be getting into things that, that sort of 
romanticize not the non-economic mm. as a space of of pure goodness, pure innocence, right? I mean, let's again take the family. Um, the family serves a function in a capitalist society, basically of reproducing labor power, workers for the system. And it, in that sense, it's obviously not just outside, even though people who are raising their children are not trying to produce workers for the system. They're actually just, you know, trying to take care of, 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 of people they love. But um, still, it has that role. So we can't idealize the family because that role plays an important, you know, structuring aspect. The family is gendered in a way that is problematic. It, 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 it's traditionally heterosexual. It presupposes gender binarism and so on and so forth. Um, and, you know, it, it got a, a sort of gender asymmetry built into it, right? Women's dependency built into it, perhaps not as badly as before social democracy, but still. So um, anyway, um, uh, I'm, I'm, I see myself as trying to, uh, defending a form of feminism that is very different from the so-called cultural feminism that idealizes femininity as the, the the new form for humanity, I'm against. I'm 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 doing. I'm a kind of ecologist, but not deep ecology, which thinks that nature, right, has its own uh, non-instrumental way of being that we should emulate, um, et cetera, et cetera. So I I want us to give up these romantic things and and look at how everything we want to appeal to has somehow already been, if not wholly trashed, at least partially deformed by the way it sits within a capitalist social order. So to that, maybe I, I hope I don't trivialize your position, but but to a certain extent, you're still loyal to the Marxist intuition that if you ignore economy or the or the the capitalist aspect of society, it will come back to bite you. So you must a feminism that is not also anti-capitalist cannot really be emancipatory. Is that right? Absolutely, and and uh, I, I'm not at all uh, embarrassed to say that that I am a, a Marxist of a somewhat unorthodox kind because I have a some a, a different analysis of exactly how capitalism works. But um, then Marx did one that builds on him, but but expands it. Uh, but but yes, uh, I, I I would um, describe sort of my brand of feminism as you, you could call it socialist feminist or Marxist feminist or whatever. But of course, then you have to add a whole bunch of other terms: eco-feminist, anti-racist feminist, et cetera, et cetera, all of the above. And that's because all of those issues are in the end issues about capitalism. The ecological story is in large part a story about what capitalism has done to nature. Um, the story of race and racial oppression is the same. Uh, it, 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 it's really about the, the form of slavery that developed in capitalism and the forms of uh, migration and so on that had to do with capitalism. So yes, um, uh, uh, I'm looking for a, a kind of anti-capitalist political 
perspective, but that is not economic determinist and not class reductionist. These are two terms that have been used to criticize Marxism. And we, we can argue about whether they're fair criticisms or not of Karl Marx, but that's not the point. The point is it would be very bad to be a class reductionist and to be an economic determinist. But there are other ways to develop the critique of capitalism and build on Marx's insights that don't fall into those traps. Uh, you were also always, in, in, in my view, heavily influenced by the critical theory by, by, and, and someone who reinterpreted that both in your work, in your dialogue with Axel Hanet and in your work with 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 Yegi. and you know in in Frank, in critical theory it's been reformulated 100 times but there's always this ambition about emancipation you cannot you cannot subscribe to critical theory without having a theory of emancipation uh, and it can have all different sorts of and in you in your book it's very interesting you have this concept of boundary struggles and you say there's an emancipatory potential in these boundary struggles can you elaborate on that so um, I, I think you're, uh, first of all, I just want to say that you are right, that um, I'm uh, very much formed in the Frankfurt School tradition, um, influence, so-called Western Marxism, and uh, but also had serious encounters with various post-structural thinkers like Michel Foucault and, and others. Um, but yes, critical theory is sort of how I identify myself in a, in a way, yeah. And, um, uh, emancipation, you're right about that too, is, is uh, central to that theory. So we theorize in order to try to understand um, the social system, the forms of oppression and or damage that it creates in a non-accidental way, the forms of social conflict that it generates in a non-accidental way, and what are the prospects for emancipation, for an emancipatory transformation of the society at any given point in time? And that has to do both with the way the system is working in that point of time and place, and also with how the social conflict is developing at that uh, time and place. So that's all um, absolutely right. Now, um, let's see, what was the, the, the last part of the... It was boundary struggles. Boundary struggles, right, good. Yeah, so that's a, a term that I coined to um, to try to say uh, this. In what is some people would call traditional Marxism, um, there is a focus on class struggle in a narrow sense, meaning workers who receive wages, who are uh, free to sell their labor power, et cetera, et cetera, um, confront their bosses confront capital at the so-called point of production. They strike for better wages, for better hours, and depending on the the, the situation, uh, perhaps those struggles become very radical. They grow, they expand. This is a picture in the Communist Manifesto, right? Until you get a revolution. Now, this is much too narrow. This is this is not false. I mean, whether it makes a revolution might be false, but the idea that this kind of conflict goes on is right. It's just that uh, that's not all that goes on. There's a lot more conflict in capitalist society that is equally grounded in the structure of the society as that kind is. 
And, you know, and it goes back to these social divisions I was uh, mentioning earlier. Um, the division between production and reproduction, state and, and market, economy and nature, these are all, um, these are all friction points, points where you have economic actors trying to grab more wealth and turn it into economic value for their own shareholders and their own profits and, 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 and revenues. And then you have the people and, and, and nature on the receiving end. So this is already set up as a potential conflict situation. And um, a lot of the social conflict in capitalist society turns on these boundary questions. Where should we draw the line between what the state should do and what the market should do, right? Social democracy was one answer to that question. Neoliberalism is another answer to that question. And people on both sides fight about that. They fight in parliament, they fight in the streets, et cetera, et cetera, in the, in the newspapers, in the public sphere. And um, I mean, right now, the boundaries between family life and economic life are changing dramatically under neoliberalism because more and more care work is being commodified, is being bought and sold. And it's often performed by immigrants, some of whom don't even have papers and therefore uh, have very little ability to defend themselves from abusive treatment in their work and so on. So um, it's normal that we're gonna have struggle about what the relation between family and quote unquote work should be between commodities and love right? Well, these are two different metrics in a way for organizing uh, systems. So these, these are what I call boundary struggles. And I think we're also having very intense boundary struggles now over what the relation um, between economic production and nature should be. That's another kind of boundary struggles. And I should say that um, in developing this idea, I'm drawing on the person I call the other Carl, Carl Polanyi. But we have two Carls here who are both really great uh, analysts and, and with lots of conceptual resources to help us think. So Carl Polanyi famously said in response to Marx, no, 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 it's not class struggle. It's the struggle between the people who want to extend the market and the people who want to draw a line and say this far and no further. Society versus economy, he called it. Well. That's not exactly the same as class struggle in Marxist sense. Both go on and they intersect. And so we have a more complicated picture of what social conflict looks like and also of what emancipation looks like. You know, again, in, in a, a sort of maybe a caricature uh, view of traditional Marxism, you would say, what is socialism? Socializing the uh, ownership of the means of production. Well, fair and good, but not enough, because what we also have to do is completely transform the relation between production and reproduction, between mm -hmm. society and nature, between the political and the economic. And those issues uh, were um, really either not addressed at all or addressed in a very non-emancipatory way by the historic forms of socialism that used to really exist in the, according to the Soviet model, for example. 
when, you know, to go back to the earlier question, we, we said we don't, a lot of people don't know what capitalism means. A lot of people don't know what socialism means. And that's because uh, we still have to invent what it means. We, we don't inherit a, an answer to that question. That's up to us. And there's definitely some inspiration for that near the end of, uh, of, of, of the book. You could say it's the beginning of, 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 of a work. And there are some great hints in the book with Yegi as well, actually. Uh, but I want to ask you about climate change, because it seems to me that climate change is a different kind of political problem that we know from the traditional political theories, including Marxism, because we have this time frame that we must act very fast. That is one thing. The scale of the problem, our historic responsibilities to the next, to the next generation, and the way that some changes will be irreversible, to use a Marxist term in, in a somewhat non-Marxist way. And in, when it comes to climate change, I, I, I'm, I'm very much. Uh, I, I debate this with myself all the time. One part of me thinks that if you look at the last 30 years, where you really have transformative potential is in the financial sector. So if we could take, like Bill McKibben would say the same thing, if we could take all the dynamism from the financial sector, use the best parts of capitalism, then we can create renewable energy very, very fast, and we can phase out fossil fuels. It's not the ideal solution. It's a horrible solution, actually, from a systemic perspective. But it's the only realistic solution when you look at the time frame. The other part of me says, Of course, well, this is just prolonging the the, the collective suicide because this is just prolonging um, this is just prolonging the 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 economy of growth and 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 how we we look at nature. How do you see this very specific problem of climate change? Well, um, I would say that um, the way we have been dealing with it so far, to the extent we've been dealing with it at all, has <laughs> been precisely through the financial sector in the carbon trading business. Uh, uh, it's the financial sector that creates these new commodities, these offsets, these uh, per, uh, permission uh, uh, items that are traded, bought and sold. They now have environmental derivatives. You know, This is a huge business in finance. It's doing nothing to actually defossilize the world economy, to actually Uh, reduce carbon emissions in any serious way, let alone uh, repair. So I think we've tried uh, that. Um, now, what, what Bill McKibben might mean, and this I would agree with, is that we have to socialize finance. We Finance should not be a profit money-making business because when you're in the business of lending money for profit, what's your criteria for choosing whom to lend to? What's going to give you the most profit? And that's it. You can make a lot more profit by selling environmental derivatives than by actually cleaning up the world economy. So, um, what if we took finance and basically expropriated it and hmm. made it into a public utility, like electricity or you know a, a public good? Finance should be the social fund available to humanity on a global basis to figure out um, you know, where we put our resources, where we put our credit, what we invest in, what we, where we urgently. I mean, there, uh, it's obvious that it is going to cost a lot 
to do what has to be done. And we need great financial resources to do it. But those resources need to be in public hands, not in private hands. And um, if, if that's what um, McKibben means, then fine. Um, but you're, you're absolutely right about the urgency and the scale of the problem. And there, there are the, these little piecemeal uh, solutions uh, won't work. And the carbon trading is a simple scam. This is doing nothing for anybody. We need not just the, the that's like the carrot, you know, <laughs> people think they can make money. Where is the stick? We need to put these people in jail, not pay them to, to, to not pollute. <laughs> anyway, uh, that's how I would see it. I have one last question, which is a difficult question, but also in the Marxist tradition, the critical theory tradition, very central are the words theory and praxis, theory and 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 practice. Your philosophy was always a social philosophy, always appealing to agents in the social world, always addressing their situations of unfreedom and being confronted with powers that they couldn't regulate. Looking back, what has been, how have you seen ideas work in the social work? What, what are the lessons to, to learn? When, when do philosophical ideas become helpers for, for those who need them and not just an academic currency, which they're always in danger of becoming? Right. You know, I've lived through uh, several different phases of this problem and, and it, the, the, it looks different at different periods. So in the, I was, we spoke earlier about my history in the new left. In those moments, it was kind of easy. It, the, the, there was a very free flow of communication back and forth between academics and intellectuals and activists. In fact, they were often the same people. Uh, the, 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 it, it, there wasn't this sense of an ivory tower cut off. It, that was broken down, at least for a couple of decades. Then I lived through a period in which we built up women's studies, African-American studies, et cetera, et cetera. But, but this became an ivory tower. This was not an easy communication. I don't mean to blame anyone in particular. It's a different time. When the social ferment dies down, what is left is the academic institution. Then if the social ferment reemerges, you have the chance to, uh, again, um, uh, find easier ways to communicate. And I think something like that is happening now. And I have certainly um, kind of, in, in, from, in my own side, um, done a bit more writing that is a more directly, um, you could say, agitational. Yeah. Uh, and I'm thinking of this um, Feminism for the 99% Manifesto, which I co-authored with Chinzi Arutza and Tithi Bhattacharya. The three of us uh, really wrote that for a non-academic audience. It's not to say that it's an easy read, but it's, um, you know, it's, it's, it's a, a document aimed at, at mobilizing. I'm a, I am, am a philosopher. I am a critical theorist. I'm not a, somebody who's out in the streets. I um, do, try to do my bit. I try to um, respond to take in what I think is going on in the streets. Think about it. Think about what's working and what's not. 
try to connect it up with what what diagnosis of the problem are they assuming what diagnosis of the problem might be a, a better diagnosis how with you know I, I'm I'm in a kind of dialogue in my head whether anybody else is listening I, I don't know um, but those questions about theory and practice are are very central for me and and always have been Well, and you've been an inspiration for us with your work, and I love the way that you coined these phrases, cannibal capitalism, progressive neoliberalism, because it's a way of activating your criti the critical sense among your audience. Thank you, Nancy Fraser, so much for your time. I hope it won't be 13 years till I talk to you again. It was a pleasure talking to you. Same here, and thank you. And yes, let's not wait 13 or 14 more years. Take care. Det var min samtale med Nancy Fraser, og jeg vil gentage her til sidst, at hendes bog Cannibal Capitalism kan købes der, hvor du ellers køber dine bøger. Jeg anbefaler, at man bestiller den hjem i en boghandel, så man støtter den infrastruktur, der holder læsningen og bogproduktionen skrivningen i gang i Danmark. Det er en relativt hurtigt læst bog med meget store tanker i, så jeg vil sige, hvis man tænker på tidsinvestering, så er det en rigtig god investering at, at læse hendes bog. I næste uge der skal vi også tale om kapitalisme, men et helt andet sted fra. Det er den kanadiske historiker Quinn Slobodian, som for nogle år siden udgav en bog, der hed Globalist, der er blevet en helt stor idehistoriske fortælling om nyliberalismens indtog gennem det 20. århundrede i de politiske institutioner, om hvordan nogle idéer udtænkte nogle få mennesker blev sejrende i vores økonomi og vores samfund. Slobodian har nu skrevet en ny bog, som hedder Crack Up Capitalism. I den bog siger han at Hongkong, Dubai, Singapore, Silicon Valley, de her særlige undtagelser, de her særlige steder, der lyser op som noget helt specielt i vores økonomi, i virkeligheden ikke er det særlige, men de har skabt deres egen normal, og det de har til fælles, det er, at de har fundet ud af, at man kan lave en kapitalisme fuldstændigt uden demokrati. Kan det virkelig passe? Ja, det må man så høre med i næste uge, hvis man vil finde ud af den her udsendelse var som den seneste udgave af Langsomme Samtaler, produceret af vores gode ven Mads Adam Wiener, som har sørget for at sætte mine brokker og samtalen sammen til noget, der forhåbentlig hænger sammen på en måde, så jeg har fornøjelse af at lytte til det. Mit navn er Rune Lykkeberg. Jeg håber, vi høres ved igen i næste uge. Tak for, at I lyttede med.